He's a rehab doctor from Chicago. She's an emergency medicine doctor from the Twin Cities. Together, we're examining the health equity emergency. Inviting voices for change without the cue cards. I'm Dr. Carrie Haley. I'm Dr. Steven Jackson. And And this this is is Off Off the the Charts. Charts. Welcome to our show. We have a, a special guest with us today. We have Dr. Deb Thorpe, uh, who is by training an OBGYN physician, but she's also medical director of gender services here at Health Partners. Welcome. Thank you. Give us a little bit of a background on where you came from and how you got to where you are now. Okay. I trained at the University of Minnesota for medical school. And then did my OBGYN residency as well at the University of Minnesota. Came into contact with some of my GYN staff who were doing gender-affirming hysterectomies way back in the 80s. And when I joined Park Nicollet, one of the senior partners was also doing gender care and He knew I had an interest in LGBTQ care, so he was of an age where he would spend winters elsewhere, and this was a whole different time of medicine where you could actually take off for four months out of the year. (laughs) I missed out. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed that too. (laughs) Um, But Dr. Petrini, that's who that was, was also doing gender care at that point, and I inherited his admittedly small practice. And as I saw more patients, then I saw more patients, and then I saw more patients. And pretty soon it turned into being about a third of my practice. And now it's a good half of my practice, most of which is done at the Minneapolis office, which is where we do, Park Nicollet does the gender care, and that's where the gender clinic is. But I also see all kinds of trans patients in the women's center, mostly people who were male assigned at birth and have transitioned to female or are so early in the process that they feel fairly comfortable in in a gendered space. So there you have it. That's how that started. And then we kept recruiting people as the demand went up and now as we've joined with Health Partners, Health Partners doesn't have a centralized clinic like we do. They mm-hmm. take care of patients within the context of specialty care or primary care throughout the system. And we are getting more people on the park side that do that as well, which is good because it shouldn't always need a specialty clinic. It Everybody who does primary care should at least be comfortable. Mm-hmm with knowing what the medications are and why you would do that. How are gender and sex different? Okay, great question that I think is one of the biggest misconceptions of the general population. Sex refers to your physiology. So we are assigned a sex at birth and it's usually based on what is between the legs because that's the only thing that is markedly different at birth. There are a small percentage of patients, less than 1%, 
that are intersex people who are born with ambiguous genitalia. Hmm. But usually it's pretty obvious what the physiology would tell you, male or female. Gender is your personal experience of how you perceive yourself to be in the world. And that might be male, it might be female, it might be gender non-binary. It could be a gender, meaning you don't identify with any of the genders. You could be what's called gender fluid, where people feel a little bit more masculine maybe one day, a little bit more feminine another day. I mean, to some degree, we're all a little gender fluid and we're all a little gender non-binary. That's kind of normal. It's a rare person that is way over on one end of a spectrum or way over on another end of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. We used to put this all on one spectrum. So you got male on one end and female on the other. And as we've studied the concept of gender, what really has come to light is that if you start from a neutral position and you might go way out in one direction as female and on another plane, you go out in another direction as male, and maybe a gender non-binary person is going to be a little bit more less out that far direction. What is gender non-binary? What is the definition of that? The definition of gender non-binary is basically somebody who doesn't identify as male or female. Okay. And so it's not uncommon to have somebody say, I'm transmask or transmasculine non-binary. And what that really means is they can use either they, them pronouns, he, him pronouns, and they're comfortable with either of those. What they're not comfortable with is she, her pronouns. In that, in mm -hmm. that example, trans. In that example. Okay, transmasculine. Yep. So if you had somebody who was trans femme, non-binary, They'd be comfortable with everything except the he, him pronoun. Correct. Okay. Some of the terms can be confusing. Is there a way that people can know more or hear more? Is there resources out there for people there to are. learn more terms and what the terminology means? Yes. Yeah. There are good resources that you can find online. And actually, it's pretty much as simple as Googling it. Google it. <laughs> Talk about some of the maybe some of the personal challenges in the practice that you've had. Increasingly, we're seeing younger and younger people. And I think part of that is over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen the growth of the visibility of the trans and gender diverse people on this planet. You know, we've seen it on TV, right? And also with the growth of the internet, people are able to access information that they never could access before. So when I first started, it was pretty common for people to say, I just figured out this was a thing and I thought I was the only one. And they're coming in my office at mm -hmm. 30, 50, mm -hmm. 60. Now they're coming to their parents at age nine or 10 and saying, I know you think I'm a boy, but I'm not a boy. And then trying to work work that through with their parents. Mm -hmm. If the parents are really obstinate and saying, no, you're a boy, this is the way God made you, this is the only way this can be, or no, you're a boy, this is just the way life is, 
even if they don't take a religious background on it, those kids have twice the suicide attempt rate as kids whose parents do affirm them. If they have even one affirming adult in their lives, that cuts their risk of mental health problems, including the risk of suicide attempts, substantially. So gender-affirming care is life-saving care in many ways. And I think the current rhetoric around it's child abuse, it's not proven, is just plain wrong. There's good data to show all of that. And in adults, there's really good data as well, that you cut the suicidality risk, that you improve the mental health. The latest standards of care from the World Professional Association for Transgender Health came out in September of 2022. And it's about 250 pages long, a third of which is references. So that's a pretty decent body of data that would suggest that it is efficacious. And as the standards of care have evolved over time, kids and adults have better access to care Mm -hmm. because they have less hoops to jump through. But there's still a lot of hoops for some of the more irreversible things, especially for kids. Gender-affirming care for kids is essential. And you don't go through this lightly. Nobody chooses to be transgender. You just are. Nobody chooses to be a gender different than what they were assigned at birth because that's a really tough road to hoe. Nobody really wants to do that. But it is necessary when that is the situation to provide care as needed. For kids, if they are going through this and say they want to play a sport, because that seems to be a big thing that people are like, especially kids who are assigned male at birth and then they want to play on the girls' basketball team. Well, if they're really say in high school, they're on gender-affirming hormones, most likely. Those gender-affirming hormones decrease the testosterone levels to the same or lower than their assigned female at birth teammates. So they're not going to necessarily be stronger, and especially if they started with puberty blockers when they were barely into puberty, they never got those muscles, right? In my not-so-humble opinion, ridiculous to keep girls off of boys' sports teams, especially if they identify as male, and likewise to keep the people who are assigned male at birth off the girls' sports teams if they identify as female. And, you know, as a health equity podcast, thinking about, like, what does it mean to have health equity in gender-affirming care? What does it mean, particularly thinking about, like, our state versus some other states who may not have the same access to care? Um, what can what things do we need to think about as other clinicians or even as just citizens in ensuring that we have equitable care for everyone, including people who um, are pursuing gender-affirming care? 
So thankfully, we live in Minnesota because all of the states around us have made it very difficult to access care with the exception of Wisconsin, and it's not as easy there as it used to be. So I'm seeing kids in clinic. I didn't used to see very many kids, but with the increase, my patient population is shifting to late teenager for a start of hormones. I don't personally do the puberty blockers, but we have a few people at Health Partners and Park Nicollet that do puberty blockers. Really getting that ability to get the kids in here and having their parents be safe here is huge. It's absolutely huge. We're ha- we're seeing people who are moving, picking up and moving the entire family to save the life of one kid. Like moving to Minnesota. Yeah, they're moving to Minnesota. The other thing that I'm seeing is people wanting reproductive health care, mm-hmm. which you can get in Minnesota. But in other places, if you are not the gender, if, if your sex assigned at birth and your gender don't match, in the old days, you had to have a sterile, you had to be sterile to like get testosterone. Like it was crazy. Like 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that's what you had to do. Over time, that's gotten better. And now insurance is covering gender care. Hmm. The Affordable Care Act made it illegal actually to not include gender care in state and federal based programs. Because of ERISA laws, you can still have some places that have employer-based care that does not cover gender-affirming care. But that, from a from an equity standpoint, that's a big deal. The other thing that's an important big deal is on the pediatric side, they actually screen for gender dysphoria when they kids go in now for as teenagers. Insurance covers it. The biggest inequity, though, is the perceived inability to access care and then the real inability to access care because there aren't enough clinicians that do gender care. So that's why we're working hard to train a lot of people. So are there, you talked about the neighboring states or the surrounding states uh, with respect to Minnesota. Are there, I guess, regulations in those different states that prevent some of the care that we're talking about? Right. So North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa all prevent you from getting gender affirming care if you're under age 18 of any kind. Okay. And is that? That's based on the perceived idea that there's no data or that it's child abuse or it's, you know, the misconception that it's a phase and the kids are going to outgrow it. And in fact, what's going to happen is they're going to be more likely to have significant mental health deterioration. And if they can't access puberty blockers, especially people going through their natural puberty if they were assigned male at birth and they get those kinds of changes going on, those are not reversible. So then you've got somebody behind the eight ball that maybe didn't need to be in terms of passing as female as they age. That's actually causing them harm. That's what causes them harm, not the not the gender affirming care like the irreversible nature of the having the irreversible gone through puberty. nature of having gone through puberty especially if you were assigned male at birth cuz if you were assigned female at birth i can give you testosterone 
and you will get facial hair, body hair. And especially if you start it pretty young, you'll get more muscle mass at an early age and you just have a very different body habitus. But if you've gone through puberty and I give you estrogen, it doesn't reverse any of those changes. What happens in those cases? I mean, like in terms of- like, the- So then they need more surgery. So they oh, need- gotcha. They need mechanical hair removal all over the place. They need- So it's a big to-do at that it's point. It's a big to-do, yeah. That, that wouldn't have had to be. And that's unfortunate. You know, they get a, I can't reverse the voice change. So, you know, remember when you went through puberty and your voice dropped? I was a late bloomer, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. TMI, go ahead. TMI. <laughs> but, you know, your voice dropped. Right. I mean, right. <laughs> and it, you can't reverse that with any hormone. The only thing you can do to reverse that and then is a dangerous surgery, which is a voice surgery. And it doesn't work all that well. And I know there's um there's there's like voice therapy, I think. Right. right. There's voice therapy. But that And that's teaching you to use an upper range and speaking with more feminine habits of voice. Like inflections. Inflections. Like learning a new language when people do dialect type training. Correct. But doesn't change the actual pitch or tone necessarily of the voice if it's gone through puberty. Right. In Minnesota, so because we are in Minnesota and we do have kids who are able to access gender affirming care, what sort of involvement do parents have or is there a mandate for parent involvement or what does it look like? What does the landscape look like in Minnesota? The landscape looks like all the kids under 18 have to have their parents help with this. They have to be behind it. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Just like I couldn't take a kid to the operating room and take care of an ovarian cyst without their parents saying, yes, that's okay to do. This is medical care. It's not under the category of reproductive care like prenatal care or birth control or substance abuse care, mental health therapy. I mean, to the degree that they can see their therapist without their parents agreeing to it. But in terms of medication, I got to have both parents on board. And we have a a consent form that has the kids sign it because the kid has to understand what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Both parents have to sign it. And then I have to sign it. And it says we've covered all these topics and it's 10 or 11 font, both sides of the page. So... (laughs) It's a lot of stuff. A lot. There's a lot of fine print there. <laughs> a lot. Um, but we do cover that. And it's not uncommon for kids, usually. That's not a one-time event. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, you come in, you have a conversation, go home, talk about things as a family, you come back, you have another conversation, and maybe you have a third conversation before you start whatever hormonal blockade or intervention you're going to do. And there has to be a mental health involvement to try to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just about to ask that. Especially for kids. It doesn't have to be for adults. Adults can do informed consent. They, you know, they're adults. They can make their own decisions. Now, if you have an adult who is for some reason under conservatorship, then mm-hmm. you kind of have to use a different model. But 
that's pretty rare. There are a lot of backstops along the way to prevent kids from accessing care, a portion of which might have irreversible changes that their parents aren't aware of. It's like almost impossible to do. Is there a, an aspect of uh, gender care or gender affirming care, I should say, where like it is reversible, you know, like, uh, you know, you go through maybe hormone therapy, or right. you go through a procedure and now you're having second thoughts. So that's pretty rare. I can actually count on one hand in over 30 years of doing this mm -hmm. where people have actually changed their minds, especially people after a surgical procedure. So the things that are reversible, if you are assigned male at birth, most of the changes that estrogen will induce, like softer skin, fat distribution, changes in in how your brain processes information, hmm. you know, in a more feminine way, decreased facial and body hair regrowth from what you already have. Um, those things are all reversible, except the breast growth, which you got, you got. They might shrink a little bit if you stop the estrogen, but they're not going to go all the way back to baseline. And fertility is not going to go all the way back to baseline, potentially. Mm -hmm. It's feasible, but not not real likely. In in those cases where a person had second thoughts, how were they doing mentally, like mental health wise? So in the the standard of care for people who want to detransition mm -hmm. is you have a multidisciplinary team that involves mental health and preferably somebody who is really experienced in gender mental health. You don't you know, you don't want to just take somebody who is their therapist but doesn't really understand gender-affirming care because that's not going to be helpful. You really want to get a multidisciplinary team. And if the patient really wants to detransition, then you can stop their hormones if they're on them. You can occasionally, like, say somebody had, had masculinizing top surgery so they've had bilateral mastectomies, they can get breast implants. Hmm. I can't put a uterus back and you can't put the testicles back, can't put a penis back after somebody's had a penectomy and a vaginoplasty, but on the top part, you can reverse that with more surgery. Can you talk to us about some of the successes and what some of the joys that you've been able to see from your work over the years and how it's changed over the years in particular? You kind of alluded to it. You know, people are um, have more access now mm -hmm. and have more information now than they did 30 years ago. But what have you seen in terms of the um, mental health as a whole community or how, how have things changed in that way and the kind of the joys that have come from your work? There are a lot more clinicians on both the mental health and the physical health side of things that are really understanding of what gender dysphoria is and kind of the basic treatment of gender dysphoria or in the rest of the world, they call it gender incongruence. So if you're reading online, you might see gender incongruence. One of the best successes I've ever had was about 20 years ago, I had a patient come in to get gender-affirming care who had figured out how to get 
their estrogen and spironolactone online. Their mom figured out what was going on and said, you have to do this under the care of a clinician. You can't be doing this yourself. I will take you in. That patient had not been out of their bedroom except to the bathroom for two years. Wow. And until that patient had gender-affirming surgery, they didn't really, I mean, they got better and better. And I would see them a couple of times, but this is before the days of telehealth visits. And I was doing (laughs) phone visits with this patient because that's the only way this patient could function. Over time, we got this patient better mental health. I found somebody who would do phone mental health visits with them. And then actually somebody went to their house to do their care. They got their letters that they needed that said that their mental health was as good as it could be. They got their gender-affirming surgeries. They went on to get their PsyD. So they're now a PhD-level therapist. Oh, okay. I'm like PsyD. Sorry. Yeah. So they're a PhD-level therapist. They run a gender program. They do podcasts. They're they're out in the world doing all kinds of things, right? I mean, that is the kind of thing, while maybe a little bit more extreme, those are the kinds of successes I see every day because I see patients who were unable to function because their dysphoria was so bad. They were so uncomfortable going out in the world and they transition and they're much more confident in their bodies. They go out in the world and they're productive members of society. They come off of Medicare disability. Hmm. You know, I see not everybody, but I sure see that in a, in a fair number of patients. And it, it's it's very gratifying. It's very gratifying to know that you've really helped give somebody their life by being able to give them affirming care. And so really all of gender-affirming care is helping guide the patient in what it is that's going to make them feel comfortable in their bodies and therefore in the world. And that's a different road for every single patient. And then also helping, in the case of younger folk, helping their parents and the rest of the family and setting them up Mm -hmm. for success to the best of our ability to do that. You are truly, it sounds like very truly and literally to an extreme in a good way, meeting patients where they are. Right. And giving them the care that they need. Yep. That's exactly what you have to do. Well, we want to thank you for educating us, educating our listeners, uh, hopefully clearing up some misconceptions. uh, Yeah. Clearing up some definitions. Mm-hmm. I think it's great that our organization supports and mm-hmm. gender affirming care for our patient population and that there are people like yourself and your team that are so passionate about yeah. the work. And, and I'm are, grateful for that backup. Well, thank you for spending some time with us on our podcast and thank hopefully you. even you know a chance to come back again because I feel like this we've only really touched the very the very surface of this right. subject and I think there's a lot more that right to, to be said right correct there's a ton we could do days worth well thank you so much thanks yes. for your time thank you off the charts is a production of Health Partners and Park Nicolay. 
It is recorded by Jimmy Bellamy with creative by Peggy Arnson, Tina Long, Tim Myers, and Jeff Jondal. Production services provided by Matriarch Digital Media. Our theme music is by Ryan Ike.